Welcome to Our Last Mill, the podcast on grief, loss, and food. I'm your host, Andrew, and usually I talk with a guest about someone important in their life, someone they've lost, and what role food played in their relationship. This week is a little different, though. I spoke with the curator of the Kurt Vonnegut Museum and Library, Chris Lefebvre. Kurt Vonnegut passed away on April the 11th, 2007, leaving behind works that had elements of war, satire, death, destruction, life, hope, sadness, sci-fi, and everything in between. I'm a big fan of Vonnegut's work, and I originally reached out to the museum to see, could I interview someone who knew him? And after talking with Chris, we decided to take a different approach. We spoke about Vonnegut, his work, and its impact on both of us, as well as what kind of meal Chris would like to have wanted to have with Kurt. I'm going to say it now, I'll link the museum in the show notes, and I really encourage you to check it out. I'm a big fan of the museum, what they've got set up there, the work they're doing. It's just a great, great museum, and it's a great uh, testament to Vonnegut and what he did in his lifetime. Please check it out. If you're looking for a good read, my two personal favorites are Galapagos and Dead-Eyed Dick. But honestly, I've yet to read something of his I didn't enjoy. And I will say that sometimes that enjoyment means being uncomfortable, and that's okay. Now, content warning, the show does talk about topics such as death, so please be mindful as you listen. Hello and welcome to Our Last Mill. I'm your host, Andrew, and my guest this week is curator of the Kurt Vonnegut Museum and Library, Chris Lefebvre. Chris, thank you for joining me. You're very welcome. Good. Thanks for having me. It's uh, it's up past my bedtime on a Thursday night, so this is pretty well. I'm, I'm just kidding. I'm just kidding. But it's, uh, yeah. Yeah, there's, last night we were tired. So uh, one yeah. of the funny things about it is you as you're nearing 40 years old, you suddenly have these What's that meme on the internet? Your childhood punishments or your adult goals? <laughs> yeah, yeah. I um, I know what you mean. I'm I'm about to turn 36 in a in a month and a half, and uh, nine 9:30 on a Thursday night. I, you know, I woke up at 6 a.m. It's 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 rough. <laughs> yeah, uh, I feel I feel bad saying that. You know, the the bands that I used to go see back in the day, they they go on stage at like eleven thirty midnight. They'd be like, "Oh, okay, the three opening bands are finally done playing. We can take the stage now," and they'd play till <laughs> three in the morning. I'm like, "Oh my god, if I'd have known how temporary that state of life was going to be, wish <laughs> <laughs> yeah, someone would have told me that." Yeah. Think about all the nights where right about now you'd be saying that uh, I should probably take a shower and get ready. You know, we're going to be going out soon. Yeah, exactly. I'd, I'd, I'd be I, like uh, trying to decide what to do first. Yeah. At this point, the only thing I want to do is, uh, you know, have a beer maybe and go to bed and just call it. <laughs> I, I always try to do, you know, the New York Times, uh, which yeah. is, you know, I, I don't read it a ton, but one time over the summer... Uh, in the middle of the pandemic, they put out an article about this thing called Revenge Bedtime. And I thought, oh, my God, that's the most perfect way to describe what happens when someone's like, oh, it's me time. It's me time. Finally. Oh, no, I have to go to bed. But you know what? It's me time. So I'm just going to punish my future self by staying up really late and possibly doing nothing of any great significance. But I'm going to do it anyway. <laughs> I've not heard that phrase, but that, that feels accurate. I, um, I feel like I live my life in a constant state of hating future me and punishing him for the sins of past me, yeah. you know, and then present me is just an innocent bystander in all of this. Uh, yeah. Yeah. I forget. I think it's breakfast of champions where Kurt Vonnegut named the local high school, innocent bystander high school. <laughs> that's, like, that's yeah. Talk about heavy humor. That's, yeah. Yeah. I know I know what you mean. I, I think I'm gonna call present me an innocent by like the Girl Scout cookies I had for dessert tonight. I, yeah, that's innocent bystander me. You know, it's it's funny, um you talk about uh, you know, pushing forty and you know, just the, the things that you know, now the, the 
which I like what you said, a, a form of punishment would now be a, a pleasure. But, you know, those things that you wish you could have done when you were younger now have no interest. Girl Scout cookies for dessert, fine. I can remember a time when a box of Samoas would have been a great dinner. And now I'm just like, that's ah, too many calories. I'm going to have heartburn. I'm going <laughs> to sleep well. I don't. I don't think I'd think about that. I don't think I would think about the calories. I, I. I think it's strange that for a very long time my body could handle unlimited sugar, like literally unlimited sugar. And then whenever Halloween comes around, and and and, and it's even weirder now that I have two children because the house will just be full of candy. Yeah. And and I'm finally at that age in the last five years or so where if I see a bunch of Milky Way bars lying around, I know I could have one or two, no big deal. But if I climb out of that one or two hole, and if I find myself going into the five or ten hole, that like, you know, something I used to take completely for granted, that if you eat a bag of candy, the consequences are relatively minor. and And now, like... They're like astronomical. You wake up in the middle of the night sweating and frightened. And it's, it's, not a, it's not a normal thing. Like I, I, I just, no, I, I do find that really strange. Yeah, we're not, we're not made to handle that. You know, when I was, um, when I was uh, late teens, early twenties, I, I worked in a grocery store, and I remember in the mor- when, when I'd work mornings, I'd get there, and the first time a cash register opened, I'd buy a box of Little Debbie snack cakes. And it's like, well, I'll snack on these throughout the day. And I could go through an entire <laughs> box in a day. But I'm moving around so much. I'm lifting things. That, you know, I, I walk out of work. I, I weigh less than I did when I got there. You know, now, if I stare at one too hard, my, my stomach starts to hurt. And <laughs> I just can't do it anymore. Plus, it's it's the sugar, too. I just I don't have a taste for sugar like I used to. I still I still do, but I pay I pay a heavy price, so I have to practice moderation but i i I know what you mean when um the jobs that you have when you're young i mean sometimes you go into manual labor like i know my very first job was corn detasseling uh which in the midwest is like a a rite of passage summer of terror type of thing but you're like pulling pulling little paper things off of corn husks 10 times taller than you are and it's 100 degrees outside it's mosquitoes flying up your nose um, so that was not fun. And then, um, but like you, you know, I, I, I definitely want to make sure my kids work in the food service industry at some point, uh, cause it's a hell of a lesson in, in, in how to treat people. Um, yeah. but it was truly amazing. Some of those summer gigs where you're working at like, a um, oh, what do you call those places? Uh, clubs, just, just places for, you know, people to swim and stuff like that. And we'd be working in the back and making burgers and hot dogs. That's what I thought was amazing was just like, man, I probably had five cheeseburgers and four hot dogs today like that. <laughs> I'm just laughing hysterically at what would happen. I'd probably end up in the emergency room if I had five hot dogs and four, four burgers today. You know, it's, I, I I think I'm on record as saying that hot dogs are one of my favorite foods. So at, at this point in my life, the spirit is willing uh, the flesh could not handle it. But you're, you're right, sheer volume. I remember taco nights growing up, you know, in my, my teenage years, my mom would make, you know, she I think she knew at that point she had to make about two boxes. She'd buy the old El Paso kits. You know, it's late 90s, early 2000s. That's that's taco night, right? Yeah, were they were they hard shell, the old El Paso? Yep. Oh, my God. Okay. And- Dude, you, you get to a certain age where you – never think you'll see a hard shell taco ever again. And then like once every five years, someone will be eating a hard shell taco and you'll be like, Holy crap. I forgot about those. That's insane. Well, so, you know, I I would go through, I'd mow through eight or nine of those in one sitting, just, you know, no, no, no slowing down now. Certainly not. You know, I couldn't do that, but you you talk about the hard shell. My, my wife introduced me to authentic style tacos. You know, the, corn tortillas the cilantro onion a little bit of lime miles ahead better than anything else you're gonna have like i i that is the way i have to have a taco now but last year we went to a mexican restaurant and i just remember thinking about the the combo number threes or fours or whatever i used to get with the the hard shell taco with the white cheese and you know just the most i'm gonna call it bland it's because it's not as good as the other stuff i know that now but there was something very nostalgic about it. And it just, that night it just, it hit the spot. 
Yeah, I, uh, I I make I forget what you call them. There's there's a name for it where you put the melted cheese on the bottom of the taco. I know I know it's not considered legit, but and then you put your your toppings on top of the melted cheese, and it's nice and greasy. And you can throw yeah. some uh, some guac and some tomato on there, and I and I gotta have onions too. You can't you can't not have onions, and we're definitely a pro cilantro family. Yes. Uh, yeah, like um, one of my first gifts for my wife for Christmas actually was writing a short story about how she was like a superhero who protected the world from like there there was a there was a group of people who were trying to make eggplant a thing, <laughs> and and they were trying to replace cilantro on the list of uh, vegetables or greenery that people care about. And my wife was a secret agent fighting against that plan. It's, I don't think I ever finished it, but it was a pretty goofy story to begin with. Um, so we're, we're pro cilantro. Anyway, those are the tacos I enjoy. I can have like, I can actually eat a very large number of tacos. Uh, the one exception was when I was in Austin, Texas, I find this I find this very amusing because I've done a ton of traveling. I think I've been to thirty or fifty states, and a fair number of continents. And the only city in the world where I've spent an absurd amount of time napping from excessive eating is Austin, Texas. This is this is coming from a guy who's been to New Orleans on three or four occasions, and I've had no problem knocking back a bunch of jambalaya and then going to three or four hour long concerts. Um, but twice when I was in Texas, once at Franklin's barbecue and once at Torchy's tacos, I had to go back to the place where we were staying and say, Hey guys, no offense. I know we have plans and I'm ruining them, but I need to take a good three hour nap to recuperate <laughs> from what I just did to myself. So, uh, sorry about my selfishness, I guess, but it's not, it's just not a common occurrence, you know? Well, sometimes you've got to sleep off the barbecue, right? Yeah. Yeah. Literally. I uh, I've heard of Franklin's. I've uh, I've never been to Austin. I've been to Houston, but Franklin's is definitely a bucket list restaurant for me. I um I don't know, and I don't know to, for your uh, for your opinion if it lives up to the hype, but I've heard so many good things about it. I, I got to try it one day. Yes, yes. It uh, uh for me it, it it lived up to the hype in multiple ways. Uh, you know those kind of places where you stand outside, and and I and I can tie Vonnegut into this in in, in multiple ways the kind of restaurants where you stand outside for four hours waiting to get in, you're either going to have an awful experience or you're going to have an awesome experience. And I, I'm, I'm not sure there's a lot of in between. Uh, for example, we came down to Austin in February with the mistaken idea that it was going to be 80 degrees and it was more like 40. Um, oh, yeah. And we, and we slept in, right? So, you know, you got to go to Franklin's really early if you want to be the first person in line. And we were far from that. So, you know, I think, I think we got there at 10 and we got in to eat at one or two in the afternoon. So we've been standing in line, very cold for like three or three, three and a half hours, all while progressively beginning to starve. And, you know, they, they were incredibly kind, the staff there, they were handing out fireside IPA to everybody and people were being very social and friendly and easy to get along with. And everybody was super psyched and excited um, and, you know, I had my Vonnegut gear on. I had a Vonnegut sweater and, and hat on. So, you know, I ran into a million Vonnegut fans while I was out there and it made for great conversation. Uh, you know, the Austin music scene kind of picked up the rest. I, I, I yeah. did find it funny. I was so I was so ungodly hungry by the time I got there that the guy handed me the sample brisket that they hand to everybody. And. I'm I'm 84% certain that this story is completely true. Uh but I started I started getting kind of emotional when I uh when I finally ate the brisket and it was so tender and delicious that I was like crying. I was crying laughing. You know, it was like there's part 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 laughter, part sobbing. Uh, you know, as, as Vonnegut said, I, uh, I myself prefer laughter to crying cause there's less cleaning up to do afterwards. Uh, after we ate at Franklin's, I'm sure there was lots and lots of cleaning up to do. Um, cause we were, we, we were taking that place by storm at that point, but it's, uh, it's an unbelievable experience. Yeah. Yeah. 
Well, you know, I'm I'm from North Carolina, so barbecue is is very serious to me. So I I'll never judge somebody for tearing up eating good barbecue, um, or eating bad barbecue for that matter. I, I think both are appropriate. <laughs> That's 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 great though, and I. So I know you said that there were people engaging you. Did you um. Did you tell anyone that you that not only do you you know work at the museum, but you're actually the curator? Because I I just imagine that would blow my mind in that situation. Yeah, it, it, it well it comes up frequently, and I you know this is a running gag in my family because my wife is a is a very snazzy dresser, and the only thing I own, clothing wise, is like a ton of Kurt Vonnegut museum and library shirts and hoodies mixed in with maybe some Chicago sports teams and grateful dead and fish t-shirts. Um, and that's pretty much my whole wardrobe. I do have some really nice collared shirts that I wear on like a Saturday morning when I'm looking for something slightly warm to put on right after, right after I've climbed out of bed. So my morning, you know, my get up at 10 a.m., make bacon and eggs for the family outfit is pajama pants that have breakfast on them and then a collared <laughs> shirt that a normal person would wear to like a job interview or something. And that's the only time I really wear collared shirts. So, yeah. So whenever I'm out and about, um, yeah, because mo- most recently I, I was in Chicago seeing the living members of the Jerry Garcia band uh, and I had uh, I had Vonnegut stuff on. And I had people coming at me, you know, every which way saying, hey, that's a really awesome sweater you got because there's a typewriter on it. Um, And so we were, you know, I I always chat those people up. I hand them my business card. I say, come in and take a tour. Um, It's very personal to me because I think Vonnegut spoke to people. He gave them a laugh sometimes when they needed it the most. You know, Vonnegut would take on subject matters that weren't necessarily funny and that he'd make them funny. And I I think that's why he sticks out in people's heads sometimes years after you've maybe begun to read other authors. I think that makes sense. And, you know, this was like kind of a natural transition point, I guess, into, you know, talking about his work, how it's influenced us, you know, what that experience has meant. Um, I remember the, the first book I ever read, and I'm sure this is the same for most people, is uh, Slaughterhouse-Five, right? I, uh, I'd heard about it for years, and I didn't actually read it until I was in my early 20s, um, and I read it at work. And I worked in a call center, so I had downtime, and I remember reading it, and there were just times I would just be laughing, you know, just that this, this book that's 50, 60 years old, and it's about a guy you know, almost dying in a war, and then he's on an alien planet. I mean, and it's I just love the absurdity and and to your point, you know, tackling tough topics to me with absurdity, with humor, I think is what really stood out to me and really made it resonate. Uh, With, with Slaughterhouse five, it's, it's a real trip for me. You know, my, my brother and I, when we were growing up, um, my father, I think wanted to be a big reader, like a voracious reader. He just, he just wasn't, I think he, he lacked the patience for it. Um, he, he was the guy that would show up at an airport 25 minutes before the flight and be like, Oh, why did I miss the flight? Um, because, (laughs) because the thought of having to sit in an airport for two hours with nothing to do was just like, you know, his worst nightmare. Uh, whereas someone like me is like, great, I can read. (laughs) Um, so long story short, you know, he, we had these uncles who were, who were big readers and my dad would always raid their, uh, their old childhood bedrooms that they hadn't been in in years uh, looking for books for my brother and I to read. So it's, it's been sort of the bane of my existence that I, I inhaled so many books as a young man, like 12, 13, 14 years old, that it's entirely possible. I picked up slaughterhouse five, got confused and, 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 and put it aside, or maybe even read the whole book, but didn't really get it. Um, because I, you know, I've, I've met people that were able to quickly understand everything that was happening and I've met people that found that the book jumped around a lot and they weren't really 100% sure what was going on. Vonnegut himself calls the book a failure twice in the first 20, 25 pages of the novel. Uh, first, because he says there's nothing intelligent to say about a massacre. And second, because he's saying this book was written by a pillar of salt. And uh, I, don't, I don't know if you've ever tried to truly recall events 
from even five years ago, but imagine a guy trying to recall events from 20 years ago when the thing is littered with, you know, truly traumatic things that human beings aren't supposed yeah. to see. Um, so I, I, I think there's real truth to the fact that that book is, it's, it's a glorious mess, you know? I think that's fair. You know, I, I wonder for him if it writing something like that because you're you're right i'm sure the things he saw i i can't fathom i don't think i can put myself in the sh in someone's shoes to be able to think about seeing things like that i don't know if it's cathartic i don't know if it's a demon on your back that you're just trying to shake off i don't know if it's trying to reckon with okay you know how can humans be capable of this i i, I don't know i i'm i'm not like. i'm not sure if he ever came up with an answer to that, uh, you know, Bob, Bob Whitey, the, um, the terrific filmmaker put out, uh, put out a movie called unstuck in time recently, a, a documentary on Vonnegut. And he'd had 30, 40 years of, of tape based on Vonnegut. It's a phenomenal film. I, I, I could never have done it to leave that many hours on the, on the cutting room floor, but he just made an ingenious film because he put himself in it just like Vonnegut kind of did with the story. Um, yeah. And, and there was this scene many, many years after Dresden uh, where Vonnegut kind of with a twinkle in his eye says, you know, oh, the neighborhood dogs had so much more of an effect on my life than Dresden did, um, you know, or, or the things that happened to me as a child were so much more influential. Dresden wouldn't adventure. I wouldn't have missed it for the world. And the film cuts right to Nanny, his daughter, and she goes, oh, bullshit. <laughs> And part, yeah, pardon my French. So that, I mean, that was, uh, that, that I think is probably a fair assessment. Um, yeah, I, 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 I don't know. I think, I think a lot of people write to kind of make sense of a complicated universe. Yeah. I think that's fair to say. I, um, I recently started the biography, um, you know, uh, so it goes and, I'm about 60 pages in, um, enjoying it, trying to take my time with it because I actually want to soak it in as much as I can. I'm trying to not speed through it. They make a good point early on in it that, you know, so many of his books talk about his relationship with his mother. And I think that's just one more of a long list of things that he tried to work out through his writing. I just... I, I don't know. I just, I, I appreciate the fact that he was able to put himself out there as much as he was, but I don't know that it was a, or I don't think that it was a, let me share this with the world. I really do get the sense that it was just a, a man trying to come to terms with all these different things in his life. And that was just his way of doing it. I, I would never deny that there's a part of that. Um, but he was also, he was also just a phenomenal storyteller. I mean, if, if, if you read his yeah. short stories, which he could be quite dismissive of because he had to churn them out at a million miles an hour to feed yeah. his family, uh, but they're exquisitely written, they're flawlessly told, you can burn through them really fast, and, and, and many of them make you think, you know, there's, um, there's, a, there's a short story called Poor Little Rich Town all about uh, this town desperate to have this rich um, efficiency expert move in and he starts to critique how everyone in town is doing things every, you know every minute he's going up and saying hey here's a better way that you could do that here's a better way that you could do that and he starts to piss everybody off and, <laughs> and take all the joy out of town and so they run him out of town on a rail and there, there was something very joyful in that for me like it's it's a it's a funny story but it also makes you think about you know people that can't live without constantly criticizing others <laughs> um yeah yeah you, you mentioned his short stories i've uh, i've got a few collections of his short stories and i i agree with you i i love the short stories um actually one of the whenever i uh, was interested in my wife whenever i was trying to flirt with her, impress her, <laughs> whatever you want to call it. I remember lending her a book and it was a, uh, one of his uh, books of short stories. It was look at the birdie. Ah. It was just, uh, I was, 
yeah, I was like, you know, Hey, let me, let me talk to you about this author. I really like, let me bring you one of his books. You know, let me share something that I care about. I was, I was hoping she would get the subtext and she's been with me for, you know, for 12 years now. So I think she got it. I hope. There was, um, I think the first book that my wife and I ever bonded over was Jitterbug Perfume by Tom Robbins. Um, that was, that was a major one for us, which is, which is funny because if you read in his autobiography, Tibetan Peach Pie, uh, he does mention that he read Slaughterhouse-Five, uh, on a flight home from Japan one time. And just, just the knowledge that he was taking a flight that was like erasing an entire day from his life or adding an entire day because he's coming back, um, was, you know, it really blew his mind that he was reading a book that treated time like such a social construct. Um, so I thought that was kind of neat. And then I, I think her first Vonnegut book while we were dating was the sirens of Titan. Yeah. Yeah. Is that, um, well, let me ask you, that was her first. Is that her favorite or what, what's her favorite now? Uh, it, it would be between sirens of Titan and cat's cradle. I mean, I, I don't think I've had her read 14 different books by, by Vonnegut. We, we try to, we try to space it out. Um, yeah, I mean, it's, it's, it's really fun reading with your partner though. Like when, whenever your partner is psyched about what they're reading, um, I know we both read Chuck Klosterman's recent book about the nineties, which was both fascinating and horrifying to think of the nineties as like 30 years ago, but, uh, that, that hurts actually. Yeah. I mean, it, it hurt in an entertaining way because Klosterman's funny. Uh, you know, he was able to say things like there are many reasons not to drink Pepsi. It's too dark in color was not one of them. Uh, of course, he's referring to crystal clear Pepsi and uh, which, you know, anyone of our age might remember. And then, of course, just recently, Pepsi came out with Peeps flavored Pepsi. I heard about that. Yeah. Who was asking for that? I don't know, but I, I mean, you know, those, those little things do crack me up though. It, you know, the, I remember the crystal clear Pepsi. I, I remember whenever it came out, I think I would have been living at the beach that year. Uh, my family had moved there for my dad's work. I remember wanting it. I remember thinking it was the coolest thing in the world because it's Pepsi, but you can see through it. Um, <laughs> and that's, that's one of the, for some reason, our, seeing it in a grocery store, that is a memory that sticks out in my head from my childhood. It wasn't, you know, it wasn't, it didn't leave a big impact on me. I don't think, you know, I'm not like drawn to clear sodas now, but for whatever reason, that one does stick out to me. Um, you said something too, that, uh, you know, she hasn't gone through everything yet. I, so it sounds like maybe she's kind of spacing them out, which if that's the case, that makes me feel better because I'll be honest, I haven't read through his entire, um, catalog and a big part of that is because i i know that once i do i don't get to read anything again for the first time man and i'm, I'm a, sorry go ahead i was just gonna say and i it just uh i've had that experience before with books where i don't want to finish it because i know once i finish it like that's it there's no more uh, that you were gonna say that's that's got to be i'm so glad you mentioned that because that's as a reader myself that's got to be one of the weirdest most insane feelings that every heavy reader can relate to this, this horrifying feeling that this book that you've spent time with, you've gotten to know the characters, you care about the characters, you maybe even relate to certain characters on a heavy level and they're about to go away forever. It's, it's a really gut wrenching feeling. I think I felt that way with on the road by Kerouac when I read that. I definitely felt that way with the Sirens of Titan by Vonnegut. Um, American Gods by Neil Gaiman. I remember being very upset when I was like, okay, there's five pages left. Four pages. Oh, damn it. This book's going to end, isn't it? Like, uh, this. It's, it's, it, 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 when you say this stuff out loud, it really makes you wonder, like, but I, 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 I think that's part of a very human reaction to what the arts and humanities do to us, you know? Yeah. Hearing you talk about it, the, it does make me feel better. Um, when, I, when I finished uh, Closing Time by uh, Joseph Heller, you know, it's a sequel to Catch-22. So it's, you know, iconic book, iconic characters. And um, I remember getting to the end of it, and I didn't want to finish it because I'm like, okay, 
I'm worried this character that I really like, they're going to die. And, then, and it's just in the book, but also the book is in the anyway. So that I, I think I actually put it down for a couple of days before I could go back and finish it just because I just wasn't ready to finish it yet. Yeah. I mean, I, and, and, and man, I, I think that's okay. Uh, I mean, we both have kids and I, and I, and I think if you, uh, if you have that busy of a life, it sort of becomes impossible anyway to read 24 hours a day, seven days a week, or even, even like all day on the weekends, it's hard to do that. Um, you know, back in, um, August of 2020, deep in the pandemic, I, I began reading infinite jest by David Foster Wallace. Um, the book is like 1100 pages long. I'm on page 600. I'm sure you're not finished yet. No, no, it's, it's, it's an unbelievable process. And it's, it's fascinating because the first hundred pages, I was like, this is a terrible idea. Why are you doing this to yourself? You're such a masochist. What is wrong with you? And then somewhere between a hundred and 200, I kind of got an idea of what the book was about. And now I'm like fascinated because, you know, I can, I, I think I find the Boston Alcoholics Anonymous part of the book the best and then the tennis stuff and the and the Quebec terrorist organization maybe less interesting but it's it's a really cool book but it's like it's very hard knowing that for the next probably 3 years or something I'm going to be taking that book 3 to 5 pages at a time is <laughs> You know that's that's one almost. You, I think you get a T-shirt at the end of that one. Or at least I, you should you should get yourself a T-shirt. Yeah, or maybe I. Yeah, I'm I'm wondering what I would do. Like, there's no way I could keep that book. I would have to give it to some. Like, it's like an exorcism almost. I'd have to get it <laughs> out of the house. Like, just yeah. there. I finished it. Now get out of my home. <laughs> at, at minimum, I think you uh, you put it on your resume. You know, yes. Donated to someone else. Yeah. yeah, that'd be amazing, actually. Twelve years at the Vonnegut Museum. Oh, by the way, I've read Infinite Chest. <laughs> you know, not to brag, but if you need extra accomplishments, there they are. Yes, exactly. I've seen twenty-one fish concerts. <laughs> See, you know, I think I think there should be more resumes with things like that. You know, things that are interesting about you that tell more about you as a person. Uh, oh maybe man, work related. Yeah, I, I would if, if resumes were like that, I would actually make one. Yeah, I would uh, I would definitely write a resume if I could just put whatever I wanted on there and feel like it would be taken seriously. Uh, you know, honestly, I don't see any reason not to. You know, if you apply for something, here's my professional resume. Here's my real resume. More pertinent information about me. Um, you know, love of tacos. How many I can eat in one sitting. You know, how many. Uh, you know, the fact that I finished Infinite Chest. You said twenty-one fish concerts. Yeah. See, I mean, that's 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 the top of the resume, I think. Yeah, my my, my wife's a maternal fetal medicine uh, nurse. I keep wondering if uh, it'd be really cool if she could write. Um, oh damn it! It was at the tip. Of, oh yeah, she uh, she makes lasagna for Christmas Eve, Christmas Day dinner, and it has both. You know, you know how there's all these people who are like, oh, I make a wonderful veggie lasagna. There's peppers and mushrooms and. And I'm just kind of like, no, 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 no. My wife makes a, a, a Christmas lasagna with beef and sausage in it and lots and lots of cheese. And it's, it's killer. It's, it's the least healthy thing we ever eat, but it's, uh, it's, it's glorious. And I, I would love to see that just stand out in a resume in the middle of a bunch of stuff that the average person probably can't pronounce. But look, at, I save babies lives. And also I make a killer lasagna. <laughs> I would hire them just for potlucks. Yeah, because I, I, she, she'd be the only one. I, I worked for Career Builder 15 years ago, and uh, and we had those potlucks. And you're right, a bunch of people in their 20s, it'd be like 30 people show up with a bag of popcorn, and one guy yeah. shows up with 100 chicken wings for everybody. Yeah, I stopped by Taco Bell on the way in, and I got a box of tacos, so here's my contribution. <laughs> Very nice. Yeah, I... Uh... I remember the potlucks, you know, from actually I did bring a, a crock pot to work once for a, uh, an early twenties potluck. Cause I, I'd never had, you know, I, this is my first time working in office jobs. So I didn't know whenever they said we were having a food day and everyone bring a dish. I didn't know what to do in <laughs> hindsight. I wish I had picked up a box of taco or a hundred wings, but um, I was like, well, I guess I'm bringing in my crock pot. 
we were doing a Kickstarter for the Vonnegut Library's education programming this year, and um, and and one of my one of my plans was to go on Facebook and share all these videos of me making meals from my twenties. Uh, it ended up being really really fun because my wife's a bit of a foodie, and because she, especially when we started dating, uh, wasn't always available. And, and so like I had to become a decent cook relatively quickly. Um, so it was really funny going back to being like, here's a microwave cheese sandwich. Cause I was too lazy to grill the cheese when I was younger. And, and I, yeah, there was a, you know, I was able to wrap a, uh, wrap a pepperoni pizza around a chili cheese dog or, um, or fried spaghetti with hot sauce and barbecue sauce with chorizo sausage. Just these horrifying meals that you come up with when you only have so much stuff around and, uh, and your body doesn't discriminate anyway, cause you're in your twenties. Um, that, that really cracked me is, up. One of the things, everything you just said, I would eat now. Oh, um, and I, and I enjoyed that trip down memory lane, the nostalgia, <laughs> The nostalgia was delicious. I loved every minute of it, and it was it was a good laugh for everybody involved. Was anybody uh, brave enough to try it with you? Um, with no, no, Jesus, yeah. I think I think I <laughs> ate all of those things by myself. Now that I think of it, yeah, I think it was all on me. There's a couple of videos where you can hear my wife in the background saying, "I'm not eating that." <laughs> Or, or sighing. And, there's there's one where I dropped a bunch of shredded cheese on the floor, and you could hear her audibly sigh in the background. It was it was the highlight of the video. I I did clean yeah, the I, cheese up, obviously, but yeah. And then when I was well, eating yeah, when I was eating the hot dog with uh, cheese wrapped with a p- piece of pepperoni pizza wrapped around it, I my my four year old son ran into the video and I dropped some cheese on his head. <laughs> So it was, it was actually some of the most fun I ever had doing a fundraiser, for sure. Well, I mean, yeah, to put the fun in fundraiser. I, like I try to. I try to. <laughs> at, at the end of this, we'll have to make sure that we pitch some of you know how people can you know donate or contribute to the museum because uh, I, you know I think that's a really important thing. You know, the work that you're doing there. Yeah, thank you. It does it does help the anti censorship and um, and the educational. Uh, veterans outreach events um, it, you just go to vonnegutlibrary.org and uh, in the upper right hand corner there's there's a link to click on to become a member or make a contribution yeah I do want to ask you um, you know working there at the museum I know you get a lot of you know guests that come there you know I, for me it was a bucket list item so I had a chance to visit a few years ago while I was on a work trip and you know, that was the, you know, the one thing I said outside of getting my job done those few days was I'm going to the museum. Do you have people that when they come there that they're able to share, you know, with you about how much his work touched them and how much it helped? All the time, all the time. And, uh, and I think, uh, it, it never gets old. Um, it's, it, it's just one of those really, uh, almost, almost emotionally intense moments that it's a pilgrimage. We've had people credit Vonnegut with helping them with sobriety. Uh, people credit Vonnegut with helping them with depression. Um, these are very real things. And I, and I don't want to make it sound like it's a St. Vonnegut thing. I think it's an arts and humanities thing. People turn to music and art and film and, and art and the visual arts uh, theater, what have you. I mean, there's, there's just a tremendous draw there. Cause you are, there, there's something very magical about making something out of nothing. It's almost, it's yeah. also incredibly hard to, to anyone who's done it. Like it's, it's, it's hard to create. It's hard to get that far out of your own headspace. Um, you know, Vonnegut in particular said there's two different kinds of writers in the world, bashers and swoopers. And a basher sweats over every sentence until it's perfect, and that's that's kind of how Vonnegut wrote. Yeah. So, so he sweated for his art, and then uh, and then I think people took tremendous benefit from it. Uh, a couple years ago, or, or many years ago, there was a, a gentleman coming in from Utah whose son was having some cancer treatment at uh, mm-hmm. at Riley Hospital here in Indianapolis, and we must have talked about. Um, you know, just just family tragedy and death, and 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 it was and it was intermingled with 
this tremendous conversation about music and Kurt Vonnegut and Kurt Vonnegut's sense of humor, you know, mixed in with like the worst thing that a parent can ever go through. So I, I, I was, uh, I was touched that he was there. I was, um, I was upset that I couldn't do anything about the situation necessarily, but I, um, it, it, it really hung around in my head and it was it was it was a running gag to me in my mind that like people think of Vonnegut as some kind of young adult author, mistakenly like they people associate Vonnegut with youth, which I think is, you know, he's got all these books about death and depression and war and 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 suicide and poverty and whether technology will put the middle class out of existence, like just these really really heavy topics that I you know that I think are totally appropriate for teenagers to start grappling with. But I, you know, my four-year-old was asking me the other day when it's time for him to start reading Vonnegut. And I have to admit, I was like, I'm, I'm, I'm not a thousand, like probably Sun, Moon, Star is fine. You know, Vonnegut's taken the tale of the Magi, but like, yeah. you know, after that, after that, I'm going to have to find some short stories that are very, very G-rated to kind of, uh, start on that, I think. Yeah, I, uh, I I agree with you. I think, um, and see, this is this is a, a this is something I've had to think about before. My wife and I talked about before is you know what's age appropriate. I um, you know, I I listen to you know, hip hop, you know, just full of profanity and all kinds of stuff when I was a teenager. I don't think I'm a bad person now. I watched movies and TV shows of violence and you know, sex and bad language and all kinds of things and i don't think i'm a bad person now but being in a, a parent now i'm like well we need to be really careful careful monitor what kind of media she she takes in or we need to be just mindful of that but you know as the older she gets the more comfortable i get realizing that it's just going to be take everything as it comes and just try to understand who she is as a person but yeah, I think uh, trying to find something that kind of ease into the idea that the world uh, can sometimes be just a horrible place and there's all this stuff going on. Um, yeah, might have to might have to be mindful about how we do that. Yeah, I'm I'm, I'm trying to be mindful, but I'm also trying to be. Um, I, I think picking your battles in the world of parenting is really important. Like, and and I like that you mentioned rap music because we were. Um, I forget what exactly happened this morning to bring this up. Oh, I I had found I had found a Beastie Boys song that had um uh my my son was like, "Oh, I, I dogs love me cuz I'm so cool or so nice or something." And I'm like, "You know, it might be smarter if you steal that line from the Beastie Boys where they say dogs love me cuz I'm crazy sniffable." And I and I <laughs> And I and I found the song. I meant to play it for him, and then I forgot about it. And then, like a year later, he was coming home from daycare, and they were talking about how they had French toast. And that same song has a line where he says, "I'm intercontinental when I eat French toast." So finally, I'm like, "Okay, cool. I'm going to play that song for my son." And he was crazy about it. He was like, "This is a great song." I don't think he's ever really heard much hip hop like ever in his life. So you know, we were listening to that on the way to school today. And then his older brother, the 10-year-old, asked to hear Intergalactic, which made my brain explode because that song came out 25 years ago when I was 15 and in high school. So that, that kind of made my head explode, not, not to mention the fact that License to Ill came out when I was like four. And so, you know, I took him to school. And they were listening to the Beastie Boys all day. And then I took the 10-year-old to school. And we were listening to uh, So What You Want, which has the line, I'm the illest motherfucker from here to Gardena, which I think I think they would have missed had I not been singing along at the time. So, you know, like these, these human mistakes that parents make. Um, but yeah, like right, right as I'm dropping the 10-year-old off, he's like, uh, you know, Chris, why are there... Uh, why are there cuss words in every single Beastie Boys song? And I was like, oh, yeah, yeah. I, I guess I wasn't paying that much attention, come to think of it. But I, I, I think with all that's going on in the world, like the profanity conversation for me is just like, 
you know, zero cussing is probably an unreasonable expectation for parents to have. And then yeah. too much cussing is something like you'll you'll notice that at some point or another, that if you just cuss, 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 cuss 24 hours a day, seven days a week, you're going to be limiting your options in life and that there's people who are going to be, you know, and, and maybe their judgment of you is obnoxious, but like, you know, but it'll be there. Probably is. Yeah, it's it's one of those things where you got to pick your battles. Yeah, I've I've learned that as she's gotten older. She's six now, and um, you know, I I we've got a rule here that if you if you're not sure what a word is, you can ask us about it. And so, you know, she's asked us, you know, what is damn? That's yeah, it's not not it's not a the and honestly, that one I almost feel it's not even a curse word. That that one, so it's so inoffensive to me. But you know, hey, some people won't like that word. She hit me. This was two days ago. She hit me with. It's also it's a it's like a building. I was like, well, yeah, you know, beavers build them to block water. She's like, yeah, I was talking about that kind of dam. I was like, you weren't, and that's okay. You know, she she knows if if you don't know what the word is, you can ask me. I'm not going to get mad if you ask me. Um, she gets older. If if she comes home from school and says I had a real shitty day, you know, my first response is going to be like, hey, what happened? I'm not going to correct the language. It's like, hey, let's let's talk about this one. Yeah. Um, but yeah, she's definitely, I've had the same thing before where I'm playing some music for her and I'm just getting into it and going back to when I was young and something slips out that I wish it hadn't. So <laughs> I know that feeling all too well. The violence in the, the violence in films, I think is, I'm, I'm really trying, I'm really torn between like thinking that this is all based in like fact and reason or whether it just churns my stomach and and that's like because I it, it it's tough for me, like you know you know how you see like a horror movie commercial or trailer, and you're like God the tra- the trailer itself looks so violent and horrifying. I can only imagine what the movie is like. Yeah, and and every once in a while, like they put the commercial next to a football game or something like that, and you're like, I was watching that with my kid. Are you out of your mind? <laughs> Like the, and I, and I, yeah, and I'm really torn. Like, I, and I, and I like that, you know, that was Vonnegut's thought on the First Amendment more than a few times. He called the First Amendment a tragic amendment because it causes pain and like discomfort for people all the time. And yeah, one of my puny little, you know, concerns that, that I would, I would never advocate for censorship in a million years. Uh, Vonnegut himself, he walked out of Scarface and, and, and said, no offense, it's just it's just too violent for me. It's too gory for me. Um, I think there's there's works of art that I that I also feel that way about. Um, it's got nothing to do with the filmmaker or other people's desires. It has everything to do with um, my general discomfort with it. And becoming a father has increased that discomfort on an extreme level because. Whenever I see someone else suffering now, I think of other people instead of me. And that's purely a result of becoming a dad. Yeah, that's um, everyone. When my wife was pregnant, everyone told me that how much everything's going to change. And, you know, you hear that over and over again. There is no way to really prepare yourself for it until you're there. No, it's like being hit by an atom bomb. Yeah, that's yeah, I, I agree. Yeah. Because everything, everything you think about is now around that child, and you know things that a few years ago wouldn't have even remotely bothered me. You know, like oh, I, I don't have delicate sensibilities now. It's like okay, I don't want her to, I don't want her to be corrupted. You know, with violence or you know hate or anything like that. The th- the thing is, it is, it's part of the world we live in. And so I go back and forth between I want to, you know, block her out from that, but also I want to have conversations with her so she understands it better. And I I have found that children have much more capacity to understand than we give them credit for. Yeah, I I, I agree with that as well. Um, I think I think creating a warm environment to like the understanding that mommy and daddy aren't the enemy is, is 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 pretty important. Unfortunately, that sort of requires a little bit of humbleness on the part of mom and dad, a um, little bit of acknowledgement that you're fallible and that you're capable of making mistakes just like anyone else. Um, yeah. it, it was it was very, very real for me. You know, Wesley was uh, was born later in the day at like 
10 p.m. or something like that. And for whatever reason, the hospital had stopped serving food. I'll never forget this as long as I live. I go out at 2 in the morning in the middle of November in Indianapolis to this steak and shake uh, that I hadn't been to in years. And it was across the way from this old building that, you know, used to house a Karma Records where we'd buy concert tickets back in the day. So, you know, as if that's not enough of a nostalgia atom bomb on your on your mind to know that you just became a father four hours ago and that your wife is exhausted and hungry and that you're frantically trying to get enough Frisco melts to where you can be okay for a little while. And in the meantime, you're like spitting distance from where you used to buy concert tickets with your friends in high school. And then I turn around, and I see three totally wasted high schoolers, you know, standing at the counter. <laughs> And I'm like, oh, man, that that just like completed the weirdness of this moment. And sure enough, I told them all I was like, hey, man, I, I just became a dad and I used to buy con. They looked at me like I was crazy. And I'm like, never mind. Oh, well, yeah, they don't care. OK, I'm going to shut up and bring my wife her food. And yeah. Yeah, I, I know what you mean. The day that we found out my wife was pregnant, we um, I just gotten done working 16, 17 hours. Um was tired just just dead tired i got home and said like hey i'm gonna lay down for a few minutes on the couch and then i'm laying down and she says you know we're like, oh I, I haven't taken a pregnancy test in a while so i'm like yeah you you, you, go, you go do that i lay down and my eyes start to close and i just hear her scream my name from the bathroom and so i meet you know you know that adrenaline shot of immediately like i'm fully awake now no more tired <laughs> And we see, we get the test and like, Oh God, it's positive. So we, we, let's take it. Let's take another one. Let's, let's take another one. We don't have any more. So we have to walk across the street to target. So we go over to target and we go to the, the family planning aisle and we're looking at pregnancy tests and I'm just, I'm the happiest I've ever been in my life. And I look over and I see some young, <laughs> I see a younger uh, girl, probably late teens, early twenties looking at the same test. And I'm, I, in there's no way for me to tell this. It doesn't make me sound like a bastard probably, but I look over and I'm just so excited. And part of me just wants to be like, it's exciting. Is it? And then I realize like, it's not exciting for you. No, it's very you're having a bad day. <laughs> yes. We're experiencing the same situation in two very different, very different mindsets right now. Um, and I just, I hope for her that things worked out. Um, but yeah, it's that, I don't know. I don't even know how we got here, but yeah, fatherhood, parenthood, um, it is a real perspective changer. I, I think yeah. the point you made too about humility with your children is important. Um, that uh, that capacity to apologize, to admit your faults, to uh, try to lead by example. Um, I think that's huge. And I, I try myself and I'm sure I screw up a lot, but I, uh, I at least make sure to apologize whenever I do, or whenever I think I may have. Yeah. Yeah. That sincere apology is a big deal. It really is. Yeah. Words, words like "thank you" and "I'm I'm sorry" are, are very important words in 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 the world. So surprisingly, "thank you," I think, is just enormous. Like if you if you can show genuine gratitude towards other people, um, that's that's a very big deal. Yeah, there's something cool about hearing your child thank you, thank you, or someone else for something the first time that they do it unprompted. Yeah. It really doesn't, you really want to thump your chest and just say, you know, okay, I'm not doing too bad. I've raised them right in this way, this way. Well, yeah, yeah. I, um, I did want to shift a little bit. I, uh, we've been, we've been talking for about an hour now and, you know, I, I'm going to say in the intro, um, one of the, this is a little bit different than a normal episode in that we're not talking about a specific person that we've lost, you know, but we've talked about the person, you know, Vonnegut, who was influential to both of us. Um, whenever I reached out to you, you know, we had a little conversation going back and forth about what would be an interesting episode. And you had a really fun suggestion that I thought of, uh, that I thought mm -hmm. if we had a chance to sit down and have a meal with Vonnegut and I wanted to talk about that for a few minutes. So if, if you had a chance to sit down and have a meal with Kurt, you know, what would you, you know, is there a place you'd want to go? Is there a certain type of food you'd want to eat with him? Is there, what would you want to talk with him about? Um, well, I, I would want to go to a jazz club with him for sure. Cause he was a jazz fanatic. Um, 
it's it's awfully strange that we're doing this tonight because uh, Wayne Shorter passed away today, the saxophonist from the Miles Davis Quintet, and had a huge solo career of his own from the band Weather Report and all that stuff. I mean, he was hugely influential in the jazz world. Um, so I guess it'd be cool to go to the Blue Note or the Village Vanguard in, in New York City. I mean, they got a million great jazz clubs and uh, probably great food and drink at all of them, or at least drink. Um, Vonnegut loved a good scotch and water or a Manhattan. I'm, I'm fond of those drinks as well. So that'd be, that'd be a big part of it. Of course, you're not supposed to talk uh, while the bands play, which I yeah. think would be uh, interesting. Um, you know, I, I've been uh, smoke-free for about three years now. I quit smoking in high school, took it back up again in my early 30s, quit again in my mid-30s when I knew I was going to be a dad. Um, but it'd be it'd be nice to have a cigarette with Kurt Vonnegut. I, I don't know if I've ever had an unfiltered palm oil. I'd probably keel over. Um, <laughs> so kind of extreme. Um. Yeah, so I mean, I think that'd be a part of it. I, I definitely want to have steak. Or what is it, the TV show Parks and Rec where Ron, Ron Swanson has a, a glass of Lagavulin, a cigar, and turf and turf, which is uh, like it's like a ribeye and a porterhouse or something like that, like something extreme. Yeah, I love that show. Yeah, I'm I'm not sure how many more turf and turfs I'll get to have in my lifetime, but. I think that sounds great. Is there anything specifically you'd want to ask him or want to talk to him about? Um, you know, and I'm getting this from Mark Leeds, the author of the Vonnegut Encyclopedia. He didn't always like to be interrogated about what about his work and what inspired his work and, and, and what went on with his work. He would sometimes say, oh, all the answers are already in my books. Like, I, I wrote them. They're there for you to read. Um yeah. So I, 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 I would probably talk to him about music a lot. Um, you know, in the time since he's passed and gone to Tralfamador, I would be very interested to hear his thoughts on social media. I think there's a chance it would just make him angry. But I also yeah. think that if he had a moment of creativity, he could write a heck of a novel about just the weirdness of how this thing that was supposed to make us not lonely this thing that was supposed to bring us together and give us so much more access to each other. And in a sense, I felt like it did in the beginning. Like I was a MySpace addict early on, a Facebook addict early on. And I, I felt this tremendous sense of connection and togetherness. And like, I want to say for the last 11 years, it hasn't really been like that. Yeah. Like it's, it's, it's been much more chaotic. It's been, um, you know, people say the most awful things. So like it's it's yeah. it's this really maybe semi frightening thing that we've created, and uh, and I, and I think Vonnegut being being a much more loquacious person than myself um, would maybe have a whole lot of fun putting a book that's funny and scary and awful and wonderful together about social media. Yeah, I I would love to hear his take on it. But I, I think you're right. I think he'd be horrified if he saw it. Yeah. Yeah. It's not, you know, there's people our age who are horrified by it. So like, yeah. yeah and, and ironically, Vonnegut's death did affect my life. I, um, I was driving by a library when I found out my, my mother called my cell phone and said, Hey, are you a Kurt Vonnegut fan? I'm like, yeah, I've read Breakfast of Champions. And she was like, oh, I just heard that he passed away on, on the radio, and I was literally just driving by my hometown library at the time, and I'm like, oh, well, this is fortuitous, I guess so. Uh, I ended up renting Welcome to the Monkey House and reading it in one night, which you can do in your 20s. Um, <laughs> but that's like, you know, it's like 33 or 29 short stories or something like that, and I and I remember that being like, oh my God, where where was this all this time? So is that what set you on the path to where you are now? Uh, it was definitely a stepping stone. Um, I think the final stepping stone was in 2007. Uh, I moved to Chicago in August of 2007. So if you're keeping track historically, 
you know, it's only a month or two before the economy collapses in its entirety. And yeah. so everybody I know who's been helicopter parented and, and thinks, okay, you know, I, I, I didn't completely flunk out of school and I've been okay health wise. Where's my golden parachute or whatever in life? <laughs> and, and in reality, you can't get a job at Subway. So, you know, I think it was right around that time where, you know, the Cubs had been knocked out of the playoffs and the White Sox too. There was baseball on, but my roommate wouldn't let me watch it. So I was paying for beer with nickels at the local bar. And that was when I was like, wow, things are getting kind of desperate here. Um, so I rented Cat's Cradle from the local library along with Cannery Row by John Steinbeck. And I'll, you know, and this is, this is 16 years ago now. So it's interesting to me that not only do I remember Cat's Cradle, but I remember the Steinbeck book too. And just lying on this Craigslist donated mattress that was, you know, just a couple of inches off the floor and reading these books that are funny about subject matters that aren't funny, especially Cat's Cradle being about religion weaponry and the end of the world and how it's kind of somebody's fault and kind of not somebody's fault and how people are well-meaning, but they're also stupid. Um, you know, they're, 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 there's just so much, there's so much in that book where every chapter is like two or three pages long. They're flawlessly crafted. You could read the book in a couple hours if you wanted to. I, I think that's amazing that a book can be so powerful and so easy to read. Like the critics would ding Vonnegut for that sometimes. And I thought they, that's, that's so foolish because it must've been so hard to communicate with that kind of clarity. Like very few people are trained to do that. You know, it's a, I found that that's a, in the corporate world, that's a skill to be able to get as much, get a lot of uh, information across in as few as words, as few of words as possible. Yeah. I found, I found that too. The the long winded are at a disadvantage in the corporate universe. You know, and, and I, that's by no means, uh, any, any, any type of bar for humanity, I guess, but. I think in, to your point in the, in the effectiveness of, you know, communication, if you can get across a point and also emotion and make somebody feel something in a short amount of words, that is an incredible skill. Yeah. And, and Cat's Cradle definitely made me feel something. It, it, it made me feel like, uh, in, in the weirdest way, a book about how things are not okay, but it, it, it made me feel like things were maybe the things were going to be as okay as they'd ever been or were ever going to be. And it, it, it made me, I think it made me believe that like the world just is, is, is a heavy place sometimes. Yeah. Yeah. And, and Vonnegut would say that too, you know, that his kids would go to him and say, how did the world ever get like this? And he said, don't look at me. I just got here. (laughs) And, and I, you know, it, it sounds funny, but what he, what he meant by that was that there's never been any good old days. There have just been days. I, uh, I think that's a, that's an important way to look at it. And, you know, and again, going to the, back to the point of the absurdity of life, because it, the fact that we're all alive right now is incredibly absurd. Um, the fact that any of this is just accepted as what we're supposed to do is absurd. I have always loved that uh, that view of, you know, I just got here myself because you think about it, 80, I'm sure feels old, you know, 70, 60, I feel old sometimes at 35, but in the grand scheme of things, we're still fresh on the scene. Yeah. Hey, Chris, I appreciate you coming on this evening and talking to me, especially uh, past both our bedtimes. Um I do want to ask: Can you is there? Can you share a little bit more about uh, the Kurt Vonnegut Museum and Library and the type of work you do and you know how people? I know we mentioned earlier that they can go and uh, and donate or or join, but can you share more about the the work that the museum does? Yeah, we have a we have a museum in Indianapolis, um, m- more or less in downtown Indiana Indianapolis on on Indiana Avenue, uh, which is the historical jazz hub of, of the city, where artists like Wes Montgomery. Uh, Freddie Hubbard, J.J. Johnson all got their start. Um, and we have a beautiful three-story building. Got exhibits on freedom of expression, curtain jazz, 
Um, there's a recreation of his workspace from the 50s and 60s. Uh, Curtin, Indiana exhibit, rejection letters. Uh, exhibits focused on Slaughterhouse-Five and his World War II service. Uh, Vonnegut at 100. Uh, we also have all kinds of events at the museum. Uh, educational events, entertainment events like concerts. Um, and we go out in the community. You know, I, I recently did a writer's workshop on Slaughterhouse Five at a prison. Uh, we wow. speak to we speak to schools. Uh, we certainly advocate for uh, the absence of banning books, which is suddenly making a huge comeback in uh, yeah. in this country. So um, so we're pretty busy, and we would love to have you and your visitors uh, and your listeners re- visit. And I'll just say I've I visited the library. Um, you know, I mentioned this. This was a, a bucket list item for me. So getting to go, getting to go through and just look at the exhibits was incredible. And I think the most powerful thing I saw there that just stood out to me the most was the letter that he had gotten from his father. Um, and so if, if I remember the story correctly, this was a letter that he, uh, he'd received from his father as a POW. Correct that he never opened and still hasn't been opened. Is that right? Yes, it's it's still never been opened. I, I don't think it. I don't think it reached Vonnegut when he was in combat. Um, it it reached him, his father. Gave it to him because it had come back returned to sender. Um. So yeah, Kurt's father gave it to him in the aftermath of the war, and then not long before Kurt died in two thousand seven, he gave it to Mark Vonnegut, his son, and said, "I never opened this. I preferred if you didn't either." And so that's um, that's kind of how that went down, and the letter will never be opened. Yeah, yeah. So I would just say for anyone listening, if you have a chance, if you're in Indianapolis, um, go visit. If you're not in Indianapolis, make a trip. I uh, yeah. I did, and I'm glad I did. I appreciate that. Yeah, Chris, I appreciate the work you're doing there for um, to keep his legacy and his work alive, and to just get out in the community, and you know, again freedom of speech and, you know, getting in the prisons and, and helping those individuals, helping veterans, you know, just all the work that, you know, you all do. Thank you for that. You're very welcome. Anytime. All right. Chris, thank you for coming on. I really appreciate it. Yep. You take it easy. Thanks again to Chris for joining me today and for all the work that he does with the Kurt Vonnegut Museum and Library. I also want to say that I am incredibly thankful for the work that Kurt Vonnegut left behind, and I honestly wish he were still here to try and make sense of the world the way it is today. So it goes. If you've made it this far, thank you for listening. You can subscribe to Our Last Mill wherever you're listening, and please take the time to rate and review. It helps other people find the show, and I want to get it out there as much as I can. I would also love if you'd follow Our Last Mill on social media at Our Last Mill Pod, uh, or you can visit OurLastMill.com. If you're interested in being a guest on the show, you can always reach out by clicking the Share Your Story button at the top of the page, um, or just sending a direct message on any social media. Until next time, take care of yourselves, and go share a meal with someone you care about. Mm-hmm.